Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. I, uh, I'm a little stuffed up. Yeah, it's been super smoky because of the forest fires from, like, California and BC coming up and Seattle. So, uh, yeah, bear with us for that. Yeah, so if my voice is a little weird this episode, a little little nasally, just uh, forgive me. I'm sure I can, like, put the no nasal filter on the show work when your, editing. Work your audio wizardry. Yeah. What are we watching today, Ben? Well, Sarah, today we are watching yet another in a trend of horror sequels. Um, because today <laughs> we are watching Son of Ngagi. Who's Ngagi? Well, um... Usually, before you see, like, Son of King Kong, you watch King Kong. Yeah, we didn't watch Ngagi on the show. I guess primarily because it doesn't exist, like, anymore. Like, it's a lost film, but also for, like, other... There would be other reasons why we wouldn't watch it on the show, I think. Yeah, I suppose, like, the biggest one is that it's not a horror movie. Right. And the other biggest thing being that it sounds really awful. So, before we go any further, I just want to clarify something for our listeners, especially if, like, maybe you're a new listener or you haven't heard the whole show or, you know, just a clarification because it's an audio medium, Uh, which is that Sarah and I are white European Canadians. So we're going to be talking about race a lot this episode. We're going to be talking about stuff relating to... African Americans and stuff relating to African Americans in the era of segregation and stuff like that. And we are neither African nor are we American. <laughs> so we're about as unqualified to talk about these things as you can be. So we're going to do the best we can. Um, if there's anything that we get wrong or that we should have addressed differently or just any comments that you might have on our efforts here today, please feel free to email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at underscore screamscene or use our ask box on Tumblr, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. With that out of the way, Sarah, tell our listeners a little bit about Ngagi. Ngagi is a 1930 pre-code exploitation film Now, we have covered an exploitation film on the show before uh, that was Sex Maniac from 1934, Mm -hmm. and exploitation films are typically made outside of the usual Hollywood studio system and are all about seeing them titties, (laughs) Um, to be blunt. I mean, yes. It's it's like, what can we do to see some TNA Mm -hmm. up in here? In the case of Ngagi, it's nudity and bestiality. Ooh. Implied bestiality. It's not like you see anything like that on screen. Ooh. (laughs) Ngagi is about the fictional Sir Hubert Winstead. Um, That's a good name. I mean, it's like Sir British British. Right. In his expedition to the Belgian Congo to do a documentary about a guerrilla cult there, 
where Native women become sex slaves to gorillas. Okay. Okay. <laughs> obviously didn't watch it because it's not a horror movie, and obviously wouldn't want to watch it because that sounds pretty bad. But even further, we have white actresses in blackface as the Congolese women. Okay. <laughs> and obviously uh, people in, like, a gorilla suit. No real gorillas. So it's a movie presumably about gorillas having intercourse with black women, but neither the gorillas, the black women, or the intercourse are real. Nor the ethnographic study of this gorilla cult right. being real. Right. Despite this, and also the fact that it was filmed in L.A., it successfully marketed itself as an ethnographic film, um, as I, a documentary. I guess because you'd have to do it that way to get that kind of content into a movie without, like... Like, you'd have to pretend you're National Geographic, basically, to yeah. not, like, I don't know, have pitchforks come after you. Yeah. So it, it was released in, like, actual film theaters. Mm -hmm. When it was found to not be ethnographic and that all to be false... The Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association retracted any and all involvement in the film. <laughs> Good call. Yeah. However, Ingagi was quite successful, earning $4 million at the box office. <sighs> bad, bad look, 1930s America. Bad, bad look. RKO saw the success, and they took that as a sign to perhaps invest in King Kong. Right, because it's got a similar... Lost culture, gorilla, human, woman, romance thing going on, I guess. I guess. Like, like I, I can see the connection there. Sure. It's, it's still like... <laughs> oh, for sure. You said this was pre-code. What year was this? 1930. 1930. So, like, I think we mentioned in an earlier episode that, like, King Kong took a very long time to make. So the, the timeline kind of lines up there. Yeah. Well, it's from an academic source that I have that piece of trivia. It's so weird to think that, like, one of the biggest blockbuster movies of all time was, like, done because, like, a really skeezy exploitation movie did well. Four million dollars in 1930 money isn't something to shake a stick at, you know? Like, to actually correct you, Ben, this film isn't actually lost. Oh, as three nitrate copies are preserved at the Library of Congress. Oh, so just no one wants to, like... Release it. There's fair. no home video release, there's no DVD release, no restoration, no plans for restoration. But there are three copies preserved at the Library of Congress. So if you're really curious to see... I mean, you can Google Ngagi 1930 and you can see some screenshots. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So that's Ngagi. Uh, what does that have to do with Son of Ngagi, Ben? Well... so far, I don't see any way that this could connect to a 1940 horror film. Well, thankfully, very little. Okay. Son of Ngagi continues our semi-trend of in-name-only sequels okay. that we've seen with films like... Revolt of the Zombies, or Return of Dr. X. In order to talk about Son of Ngagi, I need to talk about a thing called race films. Okay. So, due to the segregation of blacks and whites in the United States in the 20th century, there developed this race films 
phenomena. Uh, these were films featuring all-black casts intended for all-black audiences. Uh, since African-American actors would never be featured in major non-comedic roles in mainstream Hollywood productions at this time, these independently produced race films provided the separate but equal option for mm. black performers. Okay. One of the things about segregation at that time was the whole theory behind it was this separate but equal idea. And obviously the... The but equal part is a little spurious, but what it meant was you did have to have these opportunities or these institutions available for African Americans. They just were separate from what was available for white people and thus not as prominent or important or well-funded. Mm -hmm. Considered um, important. Yes, exactly. So, you know, this often gets dragged out by pro-segregationists as a positive factor of segregation because once integration occurred, what you often got instead was just little to no opportunities um, for African Americans because now they were directly competing with white Americans in a racially biased marketplace. Sure. Over 500 such films were produced between 1915 and 1950, but fewer than 100 of them are still extant today. While in their day these movies were extremely popular with African American audiences, today they are mostly forgotten because they didn't enter the public consciousness through television showings like white cinema of the period would later do, uh, at least not until they began being shown in the 1980s on BET. I mean, you can still kind of see... A bit of that practice, though, of, like, black films yes. with, like, Tyler Perry movies or, like, barbershop movies, I guess. Like, there's, like, yeah. a whole franchise of, like, barbershop movies, right? Yeah, yeah, and Spike Lee movies and stuff. I, I, I got something about that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, don't mean to jump ahead. No, for sure, but you're absolutely right. Most race films uh, of this period were still produced by white-owned production companies mm. and written and directed by white creatives. A notable exception to this was Oscar Micheaux's company in Chicago, which operated from 1918 to 1940, which was owned, operated, and creatively produced exclusively by African Americans. These companies operated outside the mainstream Hollywood industry as independent producers. Race films fell into obsolescence after World War II, with the increase in racial integration, the rise of prominent black film actors, and the efforts of the civil rights movement. However, as you pointed out, Sarah, their legacy can still be felt in the existence of a sort of unofficial divide in American film between majority white cast films and majority black cast films. Mm -hmm. You know, where even today you might have big-budget movies like Iron Man, where everyone's white except Rhodey, right? And on the other hand, you have majority black movies, uh, like, you, like you said, like Tyler Perry movies or, you know, the, the Friday series or the Barbershop series or, or Spike Lee movies, where maybe there's one token white guy, and it's kind of the reverse demographic. Mm -hmm. But this is a sort of unofficial divide as opposed to a um, mandated separation. Yeah. In the southern United States, uh, 
where segregation was the strongest, uh, there were designated black theaters. So if you were black, you saw movies in a different theater than the white folk did. And that's where these race films were exhibited. In the North, where there was less formal segregation, race films were generally screened in majority black neighborhoods. In white neighborhoods, uh, black theater goers were generally made to sit in the balconies mm -hmm. of a theater uh, or attend later show times outside of sort of what we might call like primetime screenings, uh, meaning that many race films shown in the North did so as midnight shows. In what you're saying, you can kind of see the idea of like majority white film is for everyone, majority black film is for the black people. Right. That's exactly right. Um, mm -hmm. Because uh, then as now, um, white is generally treated as default uh, by Western culture. Yeah. So race films were produced primarily in northern cities. And these films showcased middle class urban values, liberal capitalist ideals, and avoided depictions of poverty and crime and themes of racial injustice. They basically depicted a kind of parallel reality where African Americans were the majority and could be doctors and lawyers and politicians and scientists, whatever they needed to be for the story. Uh, they were depicted in these films as educated and prosperous um, because one of the goals of race films was to have an aspirational quality to them, to show African Americans in the same roles, acting the same way as white Americans um, to promote a message that basically for African Americans to actualize themselves and enfranchise themselves, they needed to move towards assimilating more into mainstream white culture. Sure. Black actors who played minor roles, such as servants or racist caricatures in Hollywood films, were therefore able to portray a variety of serious roles uh, by appearing in race films. Uh, and it can be quite eye-opening to watch sometimes when you see actors like Stephen Fetchett, for example, you know, or Sleep and Eats, who were known as these minstrel show clowns. Uh, in mainstream cinema, which is how they've become remembered to history, because history just remembers mainstream cinema, um, portraying, you know, straight roles in race films. Mm -hmm. So Alfred N. Sack was a white businessman who owned Sack Amusement Enterprises, uh, which was based out of Dallas, Texas, and distributed race films. In 1939, he produced... Harlem Rides the Range, a black cowboy movie, uh, which was directed by white filmmaker Richard C. Kahn and written by black actor Spencer Williams. Williams had been born in Louisiana in 1893, moving to New York as a teen and becoming a Broadway callboy. He served in World War I and afterwards began working in Hollywood as an actor. In the 1930s, he did work both in front and behind the camera, uh, often in race films, though he also appeared in mainstream films playing the kind of comic relief, darky role that was common for black characters at the time. Uh, so white audiences generally knew Spencer Williams as a comedian, um, but he was a writer and uh, he was even a casting director for race films. 
acted in them as well. Kind of a jack of all trades. Yeah, uh, which might have been more out of necessity than mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. After Harlem rides the range, Williams suggested to Sack that they try the horror genre next, with an idea based on Williams' own short story, House of Horror. Sack agreed, but he changed the title to Son of Ngagi to try and get some connection to the box office success of that earlier film. So just meant to draw on people's memories of that film that had come out 10 years earlier, um, you know, that certainly had seen no re-releases or anything since. So people would just kind of remember, like, oh, yeah, you know, that really successful, weird exploitation movie. That weird gorilla movie. Yeah. You know, people, if they remembered anything, would remember that it had something to do with crossing humans and gorillas or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, Richard C. Kahn uh, returned to direct Son of Ngagi from Harlem Rides the Range, and Williams himself took a supporting role in the cast as a detective, uh, but he wrote the script. Cool. The rest of the cast was made up of experienced, popular African-American actors who have been, in many ways, lost to history because they've worked primarily in black cinema. Uh, Zach Williams, Laura Bowman, Alfred Grant, Daisy Buford, Arthur Ray, all veterans of this era of film, but all largely forgotten today. Uh, Again, because these movies, you know, didn't show on TV, basically, is the big thing. Uh, So they didn't get remembered. Son of Ngagi was released on April 4th, 1940. Uh, It was mildly successful as race films went. And Alfred Sack was sufficiently impressed with Spencer Williams' script that he let him write and direct his next film, the religious fantasy Blood of Jesus. That film, which was a minor masterpiece and major financial success, led to a directing career for Williams as he became the second African-American film director after Oscar Micheaux. Uh, with a total of nine feature films before the end of segregated filmmaking meant the end of black directors entirely for a long time. He is today perhaps best known as playing Andy in the 1950s television adaptation of the Amos and Andy radio show. Okay, so... It was mildly successful. Is it fairly easy to find online for us to watch? Yeah, Son of Ngagi is, of course, in the public domain. Uh, Nobody's renewing the copyrights on this one. It's in pretty rough shape. To the best of my knowledge, no one's done, like, a restoration job on it or anything. All the versions I found online are pretty rough, um, but it is easy to find online. Um, I've linked the best version I could find onto our YouTube playlist. Okay. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along and see Scream Scene's very first all-black film and horror film, you can find our YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then when we come back, we will discuss the son of Ngagi and see how it if at all, it relates to Ngagi, or or if there's, like, something about gorillas in here. Because otherwise, honestly, like, without having any knowledge of what the film is about, someone being like, oh, well, let's call it Son of Ngagi with all of these black people in here, gives me a little bit of, like, ugh. 
The other thing that I'm worried about is Ngagi. If Ngagi is a movie about gorillas having sex with black women, then presumably the son of Ngagi comes from that union. Right. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, see you on the other side, everybody. Everybody, we just finished watching The Son of Ngagi from 1940, directed by Richard C. Kahn. Ben, what did you think? Um, it's not good. No. Um, it's novel for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, for the first few minutes, it's novel. It's kind of fun to watch for a while because it's a bit of a, a change of pace from what we've been watching the african-american cast of characters being they bring a different flavor than the overwhelmingly majority white movies we've seen so far the early scenes of the movie uh that have sort of the least amount of horror are actually the ones i enjoyed the most um hmm. just because they're different they're presenting scenes of community and culture and celebration among these um, 1940s African-Americans. I mean, if it was any other movie that was structured like that, with that amount of those kind of scenes up front, I would have been sitting going like, ugh, get to the plot, please. Like, we're just dragging our feet here. But because it was an African-American cast, it was novel. And so that novelty made the first few minutes of the movie fun. Sure. Um, but then once the plot kicked in, things went downhill really fast for me. See, I found that opening stuff kind of interesting because it seemed like they were positioning one character named Dr. Jackson, who is this old lady, they were positioning her as the villain. Mm -hmm. And I was excited at the prospect of that because we it would be our first female villain. We have not had a female villain yet? I don't think so. I guess you're right. One isn't... Uh, Genuina, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So Genuina. Yeah. And I... Me... <sighs> Maybe La Llorona, but, like, she's not the evil thing. Alrauna, even though that movie didn't get onto the list. Anyways, I should tell people what this movie is about. Yeah. Eleanor and Bob Lindsay are married. Mm -hmm. It begins right uh, as they are leaving the church, and the town grump and misfit, Dr. Jackson, was invited. And once Eleanor and Bob kind of head off, she meets with her lawyer, Bradshaw, to update her will. And she's real cranky about it. The wedding reception gets interrupted with an off-screen town explosion. So Eleanor gets left alone when Dr. Jackson comes by to say, Hey, thanks for inviting me to your wedding. And also explaining that she, she was once a sweetheart of Eleanor's father's. Um, and that when Eleanor's dad married someone else, she decided to go on a missionary trip to Africa. So Dr. Jackson returns home. We've seen up to this point that um, she's a bit of a miser. She ha apparently has a ton of money. No one knows where this money is. And as she's home, her brother Zeno comes in 
um, claiming that she has African gold hidden away, and he is demanding half of it. She rings a gong, and this missing link type creature, like half man, half beast. Ape man. It's an ape man. uh, Named Ingina. Was it Ingina or Ingina? Ingina appears and scares Zeno away. Dr. Jackson is working on some chemical potion to save mankind or something like that. Um, When she leaves it and Ingina drinks it, and it causes him to rampage and kill Dr. Jackson. Eleanor and Bob discover the body, and when it's further discovered that Dr. Jackson updated her will to leave everything to Eleanor, presuming because of the kindness of inviting her to her wedding, Eleanor and Bob are tried for her murder, um, but that's all off screen and told to us through uh, spitting newspapers, and it's determined that they are not guilty. Now, the thing about the will is that Eleanor is given all of Jackson's belongings, the entire house, but she has to live in it and she can't sell it. They're living there for a while and they start to notice that food is going missing, but no one notices Ingina, just chilling in the basement with a secret passage. The lawyer, Bradshaw, comes by and he's actually snooping through the desk and just rings the gong for the heck of it. Um, which has Ingina come up and uh, kill him. So Detective Nussen is on the case and promptly tells everyone to go to bed and he falls asleep at the desk. During the night, Zeno breaks in. He does find the gold in the basement. Ingina happens upon him. There's a tussle, lots of gunshots. No one else in the house hears it, um, but he's ultimately killed. Um, but Ingina is just nearly injured. Ingina's like weird because so many movie monsters when you shoot at them there's like no reaction and it's like oh the bullets they do nothing and in this movie we like explicitly see Ingina like spurting blood and dripping blood everywhere but even though the movie puts a big emphasis on the blood drips being left around the house no one ever notices them that's not a clue that goes anywhere and Ingina isn't really like slowed down or hurt by the fact that he's been shot everywhere. Yeah. Like, the first shot is in the face. Yeah. And it's, he's fine. Yeah. The climax of the film comes when Ingina accidentally scares Eleanor. She faints, and he takes her to his basement. And he accidentally starts a fire in the basement because of a... A Bunsen burner that's been left on in, like, the basement laboratory since presumably Dr. Jackson was alive months ago. Yeah. Um, Bob and Nelson go rescue... Eleanor, they lock Ingina in the basement, and the house burns up! And for a while, it seems like Detective Nelson is also burned up, but he arrives near the end holding tons of bags of gold to give to Bob and Eleanor because he happened to find them. So it's a happy ending in the end. Yep. Yeah, this is a, a poorly done old dark house. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, it was funny, I was talking about how I found the first bit of the movie, which is what I was referencing is like, we basically get to see their whole wedding reception. But if that first bit of the movie is a breath of fresh air, once the horror elements come in, that breath of fresh air is over. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like this movie leans on horror tropes that were like 10 years out of date by this point. Yeah, and even the way that they use them is tiresome. Yeah, it doesn't do any of them better or even just as well 
as they had been done before. I mean, you know, this is stuff that was tiresome when it was The Monster Walks, and that was, like, 1932. There's also a feeling of, like, too much backstory going on here. Okay, it's interesting that you feel that way, because I feel the exact opposite. Oh, I feel like this movie is leaning on the tropes so hard that it doesn't even bother to explain its own plot. That's kind of what I mean. Like, they're just shoving, like, I didn't even mention this, but when Dr. Jackson goes to visit Eleanor, she gives her a locket. And then what prompts Bob and Eleanor to go over to Dr. Jackson's house is they get a secret message talking about something yeah, it's like a Bible quote that also seems to be like a clue to a riddle or something. A clue to like how to open up the secret basement door. Right. Um, so they go over there to be like, hey, what the heck? And then that's when they find her dead. And then that's the the locket is what Zeno is looking for when he breaks in. He finds it and then that's how he finds the gold. Like, there's like I there's so much of that. There's so much of the her going to Africa, like, she's a scientist, she's a doctor, she's a scientist, just have her doing experiments. Her being in love with Eleanor's dead father, the fact that Eleanor's an orphan, like, we hear how her parents were killed from a tornado when she was ten months old. Yeah, and you were talking about, like, you thought maybe Eleanor got the house because she was nice enough to invite Jackson to their wedding. No one actually says that, and I actually thought it was maybe that Eleanor got the house because... Jackson, like, Dr. Jackson was sweet on her dad back in the day or something. There's also, like, because Jackson gives, like, a whole big speech about, like, I could have been your mother. Zeno mentions her having black magic at one point, which has nothing to do with anything and never comes up. Yeah, but I mean, like, the reason why I thought it was because she was invited to the wedding is when she, when Dr. Jackson goes to talk to Eleanor, she's like, why did you invite me? And Eleanor's like, I know you're a good person. Right. Because, like, you've done these things that, like, you you bought the hospital wing or something like that. Like, you, you paid for this. You fundraised for that. She's like, how do you know about that? And she's like, my... Doesn't she say her parents told her? Her foster parents. Her foster parents. Okay. The, the point is, is that it's never actually explained. Like, yeah. you could be right. I could be right. The movie is filled with unexplained questions. Like, who is in Gina? Where did he come from? Like, obviously you can fill in the blanks with your head. Like... Jackson went to Africa and came back with a man-ape, you know? It's not hard to fill in these things because it's leaning on tropes. Mm-hmm. Man-apes are tropes of this genre, so we have one. But the movie doesn't actually explicitly, specifically in the movie say anything. It's just letting you fill in the blanks with your knowledge of movie tropes. And in that way, it kind of feels like lazy storytelling. Exactly. Like, why can Dr. Jackson control Ingina? Well, because the scientists can always control the man-ape in these movies. What was it that Jackson discovered that would have been such a boon to mankind? And why (laughs) is it that when Ingina drinks it, it causes him to go berserk? That's never explained. Where did she get the gold? Like, it's just African gold that she found and brought back. Because there has to always be a fortune attached to the old dark house. Why did she leave all her property to Eleanor? Sure, we've talked about that. But also, why was there the stipulation that Eleanor couldn't sell it? Like, presumably it's because Ingina also lives in the house, but then, like, Ingina isn't mentioned in the will. Like, yeah. who, who gave the Lindsays? Like, what's up with the cryptic Bible verse? 
Like, it's in the locket that Jackson gives them. So did she mean for them to find Ingina in the basement? Who knows? Because no one actually ever solves that riddle. Zeno. Right. Zeno gets it. But, like, what was it supposed to mean? Yeah, I don't know. There's just so many holes in this movie, and none of it actually matters. Yeah. Maybe that's why I'm like, there's too much. Maybe that's why I'm feeling like there's too much. Because there's too much, like, thrown in, but there's not enough to actually, like, connect anything. Yeah, it's 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 just that there's too many unanswered questions. Mm. It's It's not so much the problem that there's too much too many questions, it's that none of them are resolved because nobody ever sits down and explains what's happening because all of these things are cliches and tropes that we've seen in these movies. So if you're not 100% paying attention, you just kind of accept them, that mm-hmm. they're there because they come with these kind of movies. You've got the old scientist, the ape or ape man in the basement, the house with hidden passages, the series of mysterious murders, the young newlywed couple, the incompetent <laughs> detective. Like, these are all things that are so ubiquitous in this kind of movie that it's as if we're just meant to accept them and not actually require the movie to have a plot because it just has all the pieces of what this movie's supposed to be. Yeah. So it doesn't actually need to connect anything. Yeah. Speaking of... Ingina? Mm-hmm. Ingina? Ingina. So you, you do mention that, like, he's not explained at all. It's no. presumed that Dr. Jackson brought him back from Africa. Right. But given the title of Son of Ngagi, uh-huh. do you think he was born here? And maybe the gorilla cult is where she got the money. I mean, maybe. I mean, that's... you're For sure. Why not? You're in, like... You're in, like, headcanon territory, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, sure. There, I mean, because Ingagi was about a gorilla cult in Africa that mated gorillas and women, right? So yeah. the the implication would be that Ingina is the son of Ingagi, that Ingina is a half-man, half-gorilla, or whatever. But, like... God. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know? It, yeah. it's It's... The thing about the movie is that, like, it doesn't even put the pieces it has together in an interesting way. Because, like, I, I'm totally on board with you that I am was disappointed in how they handled Dr. Jackson, if only because she's the most intriguing character, mm-hmm. right? She's the one where it's like, she has a series of interesting contradictions, you know? She's a scientist, but she won't drive in a car. She has tons of money, but she won't spend any of it. She's a philanthropist who helps out the community, but everybody hates her because she's a huge grump. Like, you know, she does experiments, but she also has black magic. She has a brother who is apparently like a gangster who spent 10 years in prison. She has a man-ape in her basement. Like, this is a (laughs) fascinating... But she also was tender and loving and, you know, loved Eleanor's dad or whatever before they apparently died in a tornado like fucking Dorothy Gale's parents or some (laughs) shit. There's a lot of fascinating things going on about her, and none of them have to be resolved or answered or connected because she just dies at the end of the first act. And it just sort of leaves us with, you know, a newlywed couple that's as bland as any in a white movie. And probably the worst detective that we've seen in a movie so far. Because Nelson sleeps through six gunshots in the same house that he's in. Yeah, where there have been murders. Yeah, like three murders. And, like, there's a whole thing where, like, so Nelson's like a comic relief character. It's... It's Spencer Williams playing the kind of character he would 
in like a mainstream white movie, but just in a black movie. And, you know, there's a whole gag where he like, every time he makes a sandwich and like turns around and Gina steals the sandwich and then leaves and he turns around like, oh, where'd the sandwich go? And then just goes to make another sandwich when it was presumed that Nelson had burnt up at the end. I didn't care. Yeah. Like, the chief of police shows up, just, like, walks into frame, and he's like, oh, Nelson, he's in that fire. He was the best cop we had. And I'm like, really? You should hire some new people, then, or get better training. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. Like, it's it's ill-paced. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it bears all the standard hallmarks of, like, low-budget movies of this period, where, like, people have way too much dialogue and, like, stand around talking about what they're going to do before they do it. And there's a lot of obvious things that are meant to, like, eat up time to get us to, like, that feature film length. Flubbing of lines. Yeah. Rolling right through it. Yeah, this is a one-take-only kind of movie. Um, Bad lighting. Yeah. I, you know... It's, It's really unfortunate. It's not like I was expecting this to be, like, the Citizen Kane of horror movies, but, like... I I really wanted this to be something, and instead it wasn't. What's strange to me is, like, most of the things that make this movie bad are not unique to this movie. They're the mm-hmm. standard things that are bad when you don't give a movie enough, like, time and money to be made properly. Mm-hmm. The thing that is unique to this movie and being bad is the script. It has a really bad script that's full of holes and doesn't make sense. And yet, apparently, the script is what impressed Alfred Sachs so much that he let Spencer Williams direct his next movie. And his next movie is this, like, religious parable called Blood for Jesus that's apparently, like, really good and was, like, really popular and is, like, considered to be, like, this, like, forgotten classic and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just sitting here going, like, what did any of you see in the script for this movie? Yeah, this is not good. Maybe there are cases where writers have holes in their work, and it's because, like, they're wanting to imply certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and hoping for you to make the mental leap. I yeah. don't think that's what's going on here, but I wonder if that was the thought process. Well, like, yeah, I mean, you know, was Jackson Eleanor's mom, actually? Or, like, who the fuck knows, right? Like, yeah. there's just, I don't know. It's it's sloppy. The movie suffers from sloppiness. It's brought down by little inconsistencies and, you know, things that happen that sort of shatter your suspension of disbelief. And it all kind of piles up on one another as the movie goes on to ultimately make it a bit of a hard pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the kind of thing where one or two of these sort of offenses you'd maybe let the movie slip by on. But by the end of this movie, there's been so much ridiculous stuff piled on that you just can't take it seriously by the end. Yeah. However, I do feel like it's a horror movie. Oh, yeah, it's just a bad one. Yeah. Like, it's in, so... it's engaging with the genre. It's engaging with the genre's, you know, tropes and conventions, for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all for ranking it. Okay. I bring this up because... Black Friday, our last movie, we didn't rank. Yes. So where were you feeling for ranking? 76. Really? Yeah, bottom spot. See, I I was looking kind of between 57 and 67. Oh, way higher than me then. I was thinking about, like, this movie in terms of, like, the monster trope. Mm-hmm. So I thought of, like, the golem at 58. 
And I also wasn't sure whether to take the son of Ngagi on the same kind of terms that we took La Llorona. Right. Where we were kind of correcting for the the lower, like not judging it directly against Hollywood movies. Yeah, because like La Llorona was made in Mexico, definitely lower budget, even a different cultural context mm-hmm. with Son of Ngagi because it's, or at least if, if I'm wrong, let me know, but like it's outside of the studio context. Yeah, it's outside of the system for sure. Yeah. So like how much do we compare it to? studio films. So I I wasn't really sure if we should be looking around there. Um, My floor was the monster walks, though. Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree. I I see the comparison to movies like The Golem and The Monster Walks. Um, So I totally feel... I totally see where you came from with this, but, like, it can't go above The Golem. Like, The Golem is a better movie. Yeah, I was thinking below that. As you, like, make your way down, like, I can see certainly the comparisons between, like, it's got the same bad quality as, like, Sex Maniac or Crime of Dr. Crespi. I just feel it's worse than The Monster Walks because I feel like this is The Monster Walks with an African-American cast and a script that doesn't make sense. Sure. Like, The Monster Walks is the same kind of movie, but at least The Monster Walks, the plot holds together. You know, we know why there's an ape in the basement, and we know, you know, who's doing what and why. It it all makes sense. It's a poorly executed film, but this is just the same thing but worse, right? I can't. That's I I can't put this above the monster walks. Um. So then, looking at, you were thinking very bottom of the list at seventy six. Um. There's also Condemned to Live at seventy five. And Torture Ship at 74. I don't think this is as bad as Torture Ship. So here's why I was thinking this. And, and I'll, I, you know, I'm free to debate on this one. Like, we can, we can hash this out. Yeah. Um, but the reason I was thinking bottom of the list is because Torture Ship ended up not going at the bottom of the list because we identified that it had some interesting, neat ideas and then just was a bad movie that didn't pull any of them off well yeah. at all. yeah. Um, Condemned to Live, below that, has some bad ideas that it didn't pull off well. But the bad ideas in Condemned to Live were new ideas, right? Like, Condemned to Live has the whole, like, cringy element of, like, he's a vampire because he was, like, born in darkest Africa or something. But the idea of saying, like, oh, he's this kind of vampire that, you know, isn't supernatural, isn't magical but, like, totally medical in nature and scientific, was a new idea. It just kind of sucked and was dumb and bad. Mm. This movie has no new ideas at all, so it's all just recycled old stuff, and it doesn't do any of them well. So you kind of have this spectrum that goes from, you know, good new ideas done poorly to bad new ideas done poorly to bad old ideas done poorly. And that's how I ended up at 76. Sure. Yeah, I guess if they had actually been able to do something with Dr. Jackson Mm -hmm. and had kind of delved a bit more into, like, those contradictions you mentioned earlier. But even just, like, I kind of wish he was the villain because otherwise no one's really the villain, not even in Gina, because he is doing the Frankenstein's monster type of sympathetic 
deal. Yeah, which is why it's kind of unfair that he just, like, burns up in the house at the end. Yeah, they lock him in a cage. Yeah. And leave him to burn. It's a little upsetting. Yeah. Um, but it's supposed to seem heroic. Anyways, um, yeah, I think... I guess even that's tired and rehashed. Exactly. Like, like I don't think you can rank the movie high because you wanted it to be better than it was. <laughs> if anything, in my point of view, that makes it worse because you had these expectations that the movie didn't meet. Not even meet. expectations, just hopes. These hopes that the movie didn't meet. And you can't project those hopes onto the movie. Like, a movie doesn't retroactively become better because you wrote good fan fiction about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I I mean, if it exists, there's probably fan fiction about it. Do you think there's fan fiction about Son of Ngagi? No, I don't. But maybe our intrepid listeners can make some. Anyways, okay, I think you make a good point about why it goes at 76. Yeah, it's just, like, I'm sorry, I, I don't want it to go at 76, but I just can't think of what redeems it, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, well, entering the list at the bottom, at number 76, it's Son of Ngagi from 1940, directed by Richard C. Kahn. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to the other episodes that we've kind of referred to or mentioned today. You can also find our appeals box if you feel like we should reconsider either this or any other ranking. Please drop us a line, let us know what you think, and we'll reconsider. Uh, if Tumblr isn't your bag, you can also contact us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can also access us on any podcasting app by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can do so by leaving us a rating or a review. <laughs> or you can just uh, do the good work manually by talking about us on social media or to a friend. Recommendations and word of mouth are a great way to help us out. Another great way to help us out is by going to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for just a dollar a month. Patrons get access to bonus audio cut from previous episodes at the $5 a month level, as well as bespoke horror writing fiction at the $10 a month level. Plus, you get to go through a really cool initiation ceremony where we pour some of your blood in a cup with the rest of our blood and we drink it and there's chants and red robes and possibly a lizard person rising up. Um, but it's a really fun initiation. It really brings us together as a community of, of uh, horror fans. That's right. And your monthly contribution... Of blood and money. That's right. Uh, goes towards ensuring that the battlements of Castle Scream scene will keep out the angry mobs of the townsfolk below for centuries to come. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, we have a treat, Sarah. We have a A picture from a major studio. <laughs> um, it's our return to Paramount Pictures. We have not seen a Paramount film since Supernatural. And it's also 
from the director and producer of King Kong. It's Marion Cooper and Ernest Shodzak. And it's also our first horror movie in full three-tone Technicolor. It's 1940s Dr. Cyclops. What? I've not heard of this movie at all. Dr. Cyclops. Okay. Uh, so the X-Men are there, or...? Yeah, it's, it's, it's after... And he does, know, like, heat rays? Yeah, uh, concussive force beams. <laughs> Professor X steps down, and Scott Summers gets his, you know, his doctorate, and is now leading the school. And um, it's about Dr. Cyclops. <laughs> Great. Um, well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.